There's a story told, a bit of a silly story, about a wealthy man who decided that he wanted to live on a hilltop in California. And so he bought a mansion up on top of this hill and moved in. Because of the vistas that were there, because of the scenery that could be seen from the top of the hill, the house was just covered with glass, windows everywhere. The wealthy man moved in, and after a while, the the windows began to bother him. The height of the day, as the sun was shining, it was just too bright. Too much light. Every bit of dust that was on the furniture, every bit of dirt that was on the floor, every bit of clutter that was in the house could be seen in the brightness of this light. The light just bothered him. So being as wealthy as he was, decided he would buy some curtains, light-blocking curtains. When the sun was up and during the day, the curtains would close and not leave in the light. So he chose to live in the midst of the darkness. Now, he had electric lights that he would turn on. He even had a flashlight in case of emergencies. But he lived in the midst of the dimness of that light. And then, as would be expected living in California, that great day came. The big one. The mountains shook. Foundations rumbled. And everything within his house began to shift and fall and clutter and electricity went out. And in the midst of the turmoil, all he had was a little flashlight to make his way around. To try to find the things that he needed. Just the dimness of a little flashlight. His friends began to be concerned about him. They didn't hear from him. So finally, one of his friends comes to the door and knocks on the door and The man with his flashlight trembling over all kinds of things finally makes his way to the door and he opens up the door and lets his friend in. And the rich man says to his friend, help me. My life is a shamble. My house is destroyed. I I, I can't find my way around. I can't find anything. I've got this flashlight and and I just can't find anything. And finally, his friend in, in utter contempt said, what is wrong with you? Walks over to the windows. Pulls back the shades. And the splendor and the majesty of all of that brightness and all the glory of the sun came flooding into that home. Of course, within the midst of that light and the midst of that majesty, he found what he needed in organized his life and chose to live now in the light. 
Do you know he never needed that flashlight again in the day? Because when he compared that flashlight and the dimness of its light to the splendor of the sun and all of its majesty and glory, there was absolutely no comparison. Now, that's a silly story. As you think about that, you would say, who would be so foolish? Who would be so foolish as to live their life in that kind of darkness when there's such glory that is available, such majesty, such brightness? Why would somebody depend on a flashlight when they have the sun? Isaiah says, many of us live in that kind of foolishness. Not physically. We open our shades and have our windows. But spiritually, we live in the light of a flashlight when the majesty and glory of the sun is ours. Isaiah uses that theme of why will you settle for this when you have this greatness? It's a theme that you see throughout the book of Isaiah where we're going to get to, yes, eventually we will get there, to Isaiah chapter 50. When Isaiah says, you who are walking in the, the midst of the darkness, don't. Don't use your own light, your own little flashlight, your own little, in that day, torch. Wait for the glory and majesty of God because that will be the greatness. He says, don't walk in the light of your own torches, your own light. A little later in Isaiah chapter 55, Isaiah will ask this question, why do you spend your money on that which does not satisfy. Why do you spend your money on that which cannot satisfy your hunger or quench your thirst? God says, come to me in the, the bounty of my banquet. And the whole idea is, why do we settle for so little? When the majesty of the sun is ours. The New Testament says something kind of similar. Jesus in his teaching says, you know, there's two ways to build our lives. We can build our lives on a solid foundation, on that which will hold up when everything falls apart around us. Or we can build our homes on shifting foundations. Said it this way in, in Luke chapter 6. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do, not what, do, and do not do what I say? I will show you what it is like. I will, I'm sorry. I will show you what he is like who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice. He is like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. When the flood came, when the torrent struck, that house, I'm sorry, the torrent struck that house, but could not shake it 
because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. Jesus says there's going to be storms. There's going to be times when our lives get shaken up. And where we build our lives, what we found them upon, what guides us and leads us will determine how we respond in the midst of that torrent turmoil. In Isaiah chapter 2 and 3 and 4, we're going to kind of run through these very quickly this morning. Isaiah wants us to understand that when God shakes things up, and God does shake things up, sometimes he shakes them up kind of in a blessing way, and things that we don't expect suddenly come our way. I often tell the story that when we were in seminary and we had nothing left to eat, I mean literally, Nothing left to eat. And walking to my mailbox in the seminary, and there was a check for an amount of money that helped us buy food that day and do things like that. God shook things up. Sometimes God shakes things up the other way. Things kind of fall apart around us. But what God wants us to understand, what Isaiah wants us to understand, is that if we are living in the splendor of God, if we understand the majesty and glory and awesomeness of our God, then we will prosper, not necessarily in wealth and power and those things, but guaranteed we will prosper spiritually. As Isaiah is developing this passage, as he's talking about what's going on, there's a verse that sort of lays that down for us. As he's, he's talking about the, the, the struggle of that day. He's talking about the, the upheaval of that day. And it says, and I'm looking for the passage. I just have the wrong page here. He says in Isaiah chapter 2, in verse 19, Men will flee to caves in the rocks, and to holes in the ground from dread of the Lord, and the splendor of his majesty when he rises to shake the earth. The idea in Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 2, and Isaiah chapter 3, and Isaiah chapter 4, is that God has gotten off of his throne, and it's not the idea that, that you know, he literally sits on the throne, but that God is active, that God is about to do something, and when God does something, it shakes up our world. Things are not the way they used to be. The question becomes, what guides us and leads us? What's our foundation when God shakes things up? When God rises from his throne to begin his work? Now in these verses, there's a word that comes up over and over and over again. Comes up in fact 11 different times. In chapter 2, verse 2, until chapter 4, verse 6. 
It's this word. Day. 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 And you need to understand what Isaiah is talking about. You see, on the day that God chooses to act, he's going to shake up our lives. And that word day doesn't mean 24 hours in these kinds of passages. It means the day when God chooses to get involved in what's taking place. When he chooses to directly move and bring about his purpose and will. Now, he's always doing that. But there's the idea that God is uniquely moving in the midst of a particular situation. When I'm struggling and suddenly I sense his presence in a unique way on that day. When I'm involved in rebellion and disobedience to God and God says, you know what, I need to deal with that in your life. And it's that day. God has those days in our lives. God has those days in a family, in a nation, in a church. When God says, I'm going to move. I'm going to shake things up. When you read through this passage and take some time this afternoon to read through it, you'll see a couple of themes. The first one is that idea of day. And when you think of day, the day is any day that God chooses to act upon his creation. He's going to do something. Again, not that God isn't providentially involved all the time, but there's a sense of he's moving. He's uniquely at work. He's doing something unique. Sometimes it's the day of the Lord. And if you read down through here, particularly in Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 through through 5, in Isaiah chapter 4, verses 2 through 6, it talks about that day, the last day. It's the day of the Lord when God comes back and says, I am dealing with everything. And it's a day that we look forward to. It's a day when God will ask us to give an account of our lives. And for those who know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, it is an account of how I've used my life to glorify him for the purpose of reward. For those who are not part of Christ, it will be a day of accounting, not for reward, but for judgment. But that day is coming. It may come universally. When God says, I'm coming, it may come individually. When God says, I'm coming for you to take you into eternity. The day of the Lord. But the day that is mentioned here is the day or day or that day. And that's in a temporal event when God chooses to act in the present age. God is going to do something in your life. God is going to do something in your family. God is going to do something in your church. God is going to do something in your place of work. God is going to do something in your nation. God is at work. He's doing something. And when we as people and nation and churches are in rebellion to God, 
usually that day is a day of discipline. When God says, I've had enough. We think about July 4th and the nation that God has given to us. I believe one of those days when God chose to move began in 1861 and lasted to 1865. When God said, I've had enough of this stain on this nation. I'm going to deal with it. I think there have been other times when God said, I've had enough. I will deal with it. I know there have been times in my life. I remember one time we were in graduate school and I was sitting across from Cindy and she was telling me about something that I was doing that was really wrong. And finally she looked at me and said, I want you to know, honey, that disgusts me when you do that. I remember going... That was that day. I remember other days when God says, Keith, we need a deal. We have those days in our lives. And one of the reasons for those days is to show us that all that we depend upon that is not God will not support us in those days. They're only flashlights with the dimmest of lights. And so as you read down through the rest of Isaiah and you begin there in Isaiah chapter 2 beginning in verse 6 and you read down all the way through to Isaiah chapter 4 and verse 1, what God is saying through, through Isaiah is this, that when God shakes things up, all human resources, all the things that we believe will hold us up, will give us strength, will give us sufficiency, will be adequate in the midst of the struggle, are exposed as insufficient. When the ground shook and the man lived in the darkness of his house, he suddenly realized that what he was dependent upon was not sufficient. And so Isaiah begins to list here the things that simply will not be enough. When he says our human resources, our, our man-made solutions are going to be insufficient to secure us in the times when things get shaken up. And then he begins to list them. And we don't have time this morning, but you can go back and read them as one upon another. Isaiah begins to talk about them. He begins there in Isaiah chapter 2 and, and beginning particularly in verse 6 when he talks about worldly understanding. He, he talks about superstition from the east and practices of divination and clasping of hands with pagans. It's the idea of using the world's wisdom rather than God's. God says, that's not going to be enough. Depend on the world's answers and the world's solutions. Is there some wisdom there? Sure, but never enough. Never sufficient. 
He goes on to talk about gold and silver and how they just have so much wealth. And I almost begin to believe he's talking about our culture today. We, we're dependent so much on rationalism and, God, and, you know, kind of worldly wisdom, even when it violates what God's word says. Or we begin to believe that wealth really does make us better than other people. God says that won't be sufficient. You've been watching the stock market? I lost every bit of my gain that I had at the beginning of the year is now gone. Ain't much security there. Even when it's going up, there's no certainty. He goes on to talk about might and the idea of 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 strength and you know we, we've got the military might we've got the physical might and he, he talks in there as he's describing it as they have they're full of horses and they have no end of chariots again we don't think that's very much but that was their secret weapon that was their weapons of mass destruction God says that won't be sufficient No, and let's talk about another one. Let's talk about godless spirituality. And he talks about idols. And the Hebrews have this wonderful way. Do you know what they call idols? Non-God. The word in Hebrew, the word that Isaiah uses, when you read the word idol is, there is God, and then there's the non-God. There's nothing there. And I know we're saying, I don't bow down to any God. I don't have a statue in my house. Oh, but we have our gods. Anything we believe will give us meaning and value and security and significance. In the midst of our internal reality, other than God, is an idol. I love to watch my grandson play soccer. And I have to be careful because I love the game so much. I just want to get involved. Brennan's sort of semi-coach. He's laughing at me because, you know, I'm sitting on the sideline going, go, 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 come over here, come back, pass the ball. I'm just really involved in it. I just love the game. Yes, I've been watching the World Cup. And yes, I, you know, Spain's going to beat Russia this, afternoon, this morning. Um, but whatever it is. But you know what I do notice? I notice the parents, especially the fathers, whose sense of identity and value is caught up in how their, their son or their daughter plays sports. And suddenly it becomes their God. They really believe their value, their worth, their significance is caught up in how that child plays. That's a non-God. That's an idol. There are others that he talks about politics. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, as he talks there about your, your strong men, your, your leader of, of 50, your, your leader of hundreds, the, those that you look up to and say, they're going to have the answer. There's a political answer. No, there's not. Is there some wisdom in some of that stuff? Yes, but it will never be enough. He talks about human ingenuity, the the craftsman, the the crafty person. It's never enough. Beauty. 
as he talks about the women of Zion. And he is not kind to these ladies. And he says, you think your beauty makes you better than others? You have an arrogant and haughtiness because of a physical appearance? 18 through 24 talks about their possessions. You really think you have more value than another because of what you possess? That that will be the foundation to build upon for your life? And then finally, relationships. He says to the women, you, you will be so desperate. You'll, you'll run after any man to say, just take us on as, you're, as, as being connected to us. So you'll take away our dishonor. Now it's written in Old Testament language, but it's saying all of these things. They're not bad in and of themselves necessarily. Godless spirituality is, sometimes worldly understanding is, But the idea is they become our God. And we believe they'll be sufficient. And Isaiah says they will all fail miserably. But even beyond that, what he's saying is, again, it's not that wealth in and of itself is wrong. It's not that beauty in and of itself is wrong. It's not that wisdom and, or you know, understanding is in and of itself wrong. But what is wrong is when there's an arrogance or a pride or a haughtiness in those things. When you really begin to believe that those things give you greater value than another person. That you're more significant because of that. Throughout, all the way through, Isaiah says things like, so man will be brought low and mankind humbled. Why? Because the eyes of the arrogant man will be humbled and the pride of men brought low. You really begin to think that those are the things that bring you value. You really think those things are more important than God in your life? The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Again, he says in Isaiah 3.12, The Lord Almighty has a day in store for all the proud and lofty, for all that is exalted. And then he talks about the, the high ships and the high mountains and anything that we kind of lift up, he says, that'll be brought down and shown to be insufficient. The arrogance of man will be brought low and the pride of man humbled. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Beloved, when you face that day, whether it's the ultimate day or the day in our life, you will find that your resources, your human resources, will not be sufficient. And then ultimately, the big theme is found in verse 22. That should be 222. Stop trusting in man who has but a breath in his nostrils. Of what account is he? What's your foundation? Are you willing to believe that little flashlight, that created thing, that temporal thing is the foundation of your life and will bring you the fullness and satisfaction and wholeness you long for? That's what Isaiah is saying to us. 
And ultimately what he says is this, our failure to trust in God, our failure to, to, to trust in the magnificence of the sunlight instead of our little flashlights is often the result of our insufficient understanding of his holiness, splendor, and majesty. Again, we just don't have time this morning to go through all of the different verses. But over and over and over again, Isaiah talks and compares the majesty and splendor of God to the insufficiency of man. In, 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 in chapter 2, verse 10, he talks about God's splendor and majesty. In chapter 2, verse 12, he talks about the Lord Almighty. In chapter 2, verse 19, he talks about the splendor of God. In chapter 2, verse 21, he speaks about the splendor of God. In chapter 3, verse 1, he talks about the Lord, the Lord Almighty, the Holy God, the awesome God, the majestic God. In Isaiah chapter 3, verse 8, he talks about the fact that that we glory in his presence. In chapter 3, verse 15, why do we fail to worship God instead of these other things? One of the things that concerns me about my own life, about us as a church, about us, yes, in in Christianity, is that we have so failed to see the awesome splendor of God that we begin to believe that our little flashlights are sufficient. When we come on Sunday morning, the, the worship team uses the idea that a good worship service is when we get the worship buzz. You know, kind of the emotions that we feel. God says, that's not the ultimate test of worship. The ultimate test of worship is, did you see my glory? Did you see my holiness? Did you see my awesomeness? Did you see my splendor? On Sunday mornings, I'm afraid we come together and our thought is, how am I going to be buzzed this morning? Instead of coming together and saying, God, what will I see about you? What will I come to know about you and how I stand in relationship to you? I think one of the reasons we fail to trust God to make him that foundation is we fail to pull back the curtains and see the awesome splendor and majesty of God. We don't take the time during our weeks to open up God's word and to read about his glory, to read about his awesomeness, to read about his grace, to read about his mercy. We don't take the time in our lives to take a few moments each day to to say, God, let me come to see you more fully. We don't take the time on Sunday mornings as we're singing those amazing choruses about God's greatness to say, God, let me understand that. Let it impact my life, not so that I get a buzz, but that I have an understanding of your majesty, your splendor, your holiness, your awesomeness. And then I won't want my flashlight. I want you. I won't light my own light. I want you. I won't be satisfied for what does not quench my thirst or fill my hunger. I want you. 
Sunday mornings are not just what we do because it's a good thing, because we come to see our friends, because we're going to feel good. It's okay for those things. They're not bad. And God may choose to give us a spiritual buzz. That's okay. It is a part of worship. There is the noumena, the the movement, the the awesomeness of God that, that moves us internally. But ultimately, we come to know God's glory, his holiness, his splendor, his majesty. We come to say, God, let me see you. And then, help me live that out. Help me remember as I live out through the week to depend upon you. You see, God says in the midst of the turmoil, when we choose to do that, he makes this promise. When God shakes things up, those who trust in him and his provisions, they'll be satisfied. In the midst of all that is going on, and again, Isaiah is really negative in this part. I know, I understand. It's it's a little hard to make this into a rah-rah. But right in the middle of all of this, right in the middle of all of the turmoil, in chapter 3 and in verse 10, he says, I want you to remember something. I want you to hold on to something. He says to Isaiah, tell the righteous, it will be well. It will be well. For what they do will not be wasted. For they will enjoy the fruits of their deeds. Now it may not mean that I prosper now. But I will guarantee it means I will prosper in eternity. But I will only choose that path. If I understand God's glory, majesty holiness, splendor, and choose to depend on him and not my own little light. I just close real quickly with a reminder of what Jesus said. Where do you build your life? Do you build it on the rock? Do you build it on the one who is majestic and glorious Splendid and holy, awesome and majestic. Or you're choosing to build your lights, I mean your life on the little flashlight, the shifting sand. How do you know where you're building your life? It's what to what do you run to when the storm comes? When the earth shakes, when things get stirred up, because where you run, that will be your God. God says, I want to teach you to run to me, and in me, all will be well. Father, thank you for Isaiah's example. I pray, Father, that 
we will choose to live in the light that Isaiah gives to us. Father, remind us that in comparison to your majesty and honor and splendor and glory, anything that is man-made is minutia. Father, it begins as we place our faith and trust in your Son as our Savior. and That allows us to have that foundation. And we invite anyone that's not certain of that relationship to talk to me or someone to know how that can be a reality in their lives. And Father, those of us that have that relationship are certain of that. Help us to walk more and more in the light of your glory and not in our own light. Help us to know where we choose to build our foundation and father show us those areas where we are not dependent upon you in order that we might prosper in our relationship with you and throughout eternity father forgive us where we fail to look towards your glory and majesty and father open our eyes to the splendor of the god in whom to whom we have a relationship and we ask it all in the name of your son jesus amen